This is ARRL's Eclectic Tech, a bi-weekly look at the technical and scientific side of amateur radio with your host Steve Ford, WB8IMY. Eclectic Tech is brought to you by ICOM. ICOM, for the love of ham radio, is about the passion for an incredible hobby. Visit ICOM in the community webpage at www.icomamerica.com forward slash community. Now there's a sound that's dear to my heart. (laughs) Ever since I was a small child, I've had a fascination with trains. My mother spent 30 years as an employee of the Baltimore and Ohio Railroad, and I laid track for what was then called the Chessy System Railroad during my college summers. Yes, I'm one of those people who actually enjoy being stuck in traffic at railroad crossings when trains are going by. When it comes to wireless technology, the railroads were actually among the earlier pioneers, and to this day they use everything from analog FM voice to digital communications for active train tracking, kind of like Amateur Radio's automatic packet reporting system, or APRS. Even though the technology we're about to discuss has long since disappeared from railroad use, it's a curiosity that finds application to this day, although not commonly in wireless communication. If you're of a certain age, like me, and you were at all exposed to railroading, you might recall seeing diesel locomotives equipped with what looked like long handrails along the roofs. You might also recall seeing those handrails atop cabooses. By the way, if you were born any time after 1985, you've never seen a caboose except in a railroad museum display. They were specialized cars that carried the conductors and other crewmen at the ends of long freight trains, but I digress. If you have an opportunity, do a Google image search for locomotives from the 1950s. Specifically, look for Pennsylvania Railroad diesel locomotives. Check the results from that period and you're likely to spot those handrails. In the Eclectic Podcast Archive for this episode, I've included an image of a Pennsylvania Railroad locomotive equipped with these so-called handrails. You can download the photo and see for yourself. Of course, by now I suspect you've guessed that the handrails aren't handrails at all, right? They're antennas, of course. Those antennas were part of an ingenious wireless communication system developed and deployed primarily on the Pennsylvania Railroad, and they called it TrainPhone. TrainPhone was wireless voice communication, but not with radio as we know it today. When the idea surfaced in 1941, it really wasn't practical to use conventional mobile radios in moving trains. Not only was the equipment large, this was well before the advent of repeater technology, so the range was really limited. When you consider that the train could be moving along at a pretty good clip, line-of-sight communication was a dicey proposition at best. But someone noticed that most rail lines were accompanied by telephone poles that carried signal lines, landline communication, and other things. Well, why not add another wire, or use an existing wire, to act as an antenna to send and receive signals carried via low-frequency induction? In other words, have the train create an electromagnetic field 
that would transfer power to and from the wire as the train moved along. The initial idea was to use the rails themselves as antennas, but this didn't work out very well, so they opted for the above-ground approach instead. The prototype was installed in 1941 on the Pennsylvania Railroad's Belvedere branch. By 1944, they had the first full-fledged system installed in New Jersey, and it operated at about 6 kilohertz and used amplitude modulation. The range was only about 150 feet, but that was really all they needed. Also, the power level was very low, so they didn't have to apply for an FCC license at that time. By 1947, the installation grew to two mainline divisions between Harrisburg and Pittsburgh, initially on passenger trains and shortly afterward on freight locomotives and in cabin cars. They also switched to FM, and they used two frequencies, one at 88 kilohertz and the other at 144 kilohertz. Yes, I said kilohertz. This was very low-frequency communication. The railroad tried to develop a portable version of train phone, but the 30-pound contraption never got past the development stage. Technology marches on, of course, and with the development of compact VHF-UHF-FM transceivers and the repeaters to support them, train phone days were numbered. If you're a rail fan and curious to know, the last locomotive delivered with train phone was the Pennsylvania Railroad number 2415 that went into service in September 1963. Train phone remained in service for about four more years until the railroad issued a general order on April 30, 1967, that officially ended its use. Short-range electromagnetic induction is still with us, but not as a means of communication. Today it's showing up in battery charging applications such as the wireless chargers, that many people use with their smartphones and other devices. And as I've mentioned in a previous podcast, companies are looking at high-power wireless chargers for use with electric vehicles. Just like train phone, these chargers use very low frequencies. There's some concern that the chargers could be serious interference generators, although the ARRL laboratory has been monitoring the situation closely and even observing some of the testing. So from train phone to wireless chargers, when it comes to technology, what goes around comes around. I'm on the telephone with Paul Wade, W1GHZ. Good morning, Paul. Good morning, Steve. Paul is a columnist for QST Magazine, and he writes the micro-wavelengths column, among many other things that he does. Uh, Paul is a veteran of the microwave community. He's been at it for, well, how many years, Paul? 50, more or less. (laughs) 50 years. Wow. Well, I have to ask one point of trivia here. (laughs) What is the highest frequency at which you've made a valid contact? Only 47 gigahertz. 47 gigahertz. Okay. Well, actually, I make that uh, 241. I've been... Oh, that's a big difference. I've been helping uh, Mike... uh, Seguin uh, N1JEZ uh, try to get his uh, 241 gig equipment working, and we're trying to make a one kilometer contact so that it counts. And we've only gotten to about 600 meters, so almost 241, but <laughs> one way. Do you operate primarily from your home, or do you also go out and operate portable? Uh, both. During uh, contests, certainly we go out portable, and 
in summer when the mountains are open around here, and in the winter we go skiing on them instead. Well, well, of course. Well, Paul, in your QST columns, you've done a, a great job of encouraging activity on the microwave bands by giving, oh, advice, tips, how to get started. And we'll get back to that in a moment. But in your one of your most recent columns in the April issue, uh, you had a fascinating discussion about propagation at 10 gigahertz. Uh, fascinating to me in particular because probably like many hams, I've always gone with the assumption that at 10 gigahertz, certainly, it's line of sight, period. Uh, there is no other type of propagation. But you showed that that's not true, correct? That's correct. Um, <clears throat> yes, that's a uh, certainly a misconception we're working hard to overcome so that uh, you know people don't think it's so limited it's not interesting. Now, in your column... You spoke about the fact that you were monitoring a beacon from uh, Montreal. Is that right? It's on the other side of Montreal. It's uh, 190 some kilometers away. I'll let you hear it live right now. Oh, great! So I don't know if you heard it well enough to copy the call in grid. Getting it through the telephone is tricky. (laughs) (laughs) And what was the distance in kilometers again? It is 195.77 kilometers. Is the strength you're receiving it at this morning typical, or is it stronger than normal? That was about average. That was about uh, 20 dB out of the, above the noise in a very narrow bandwidth. In your write-up, you mentioned that it is not line of sight, that there are a number of obstacles between you and that beacon. Oh, absolutely. And how much output power is the beacon running, do you know? Typical beacon is one watt <clears throat> with a uh, waveguide slot antenna with about 10 dB of gain. So that's uh, 10 watts or so ERP. And is that antenna elevated significantly and pointed directly at you? No, it's a uh, omnidirectional, but I believe it's about 600 feet above on a hill. I'm using a two-foot offset dish, which is uh, sitting uh, right outside my uh, basement door, pointed uh, that way and happens to be a little notch in the trees and uh, hills in that direction, which may, gives me a slight improvement. Is your property elevated? I'm on the side of a hill, about 18, 25 feet. The dish itself, uh, I would assume you're using, obviously, an LNA. Uh, you're probably not using a gun plexer, although maybe you are. No, no. This is a real narrowband receiver transverter. This one's a down east microwave transverter. It's got a pretty good noise figure, and, and the dish has upwards of 30 dB of gain, so that helps a lot, but makes it very sharp. One thing you touched upon in your column was the possibility of weather enhancement. Have you noticed this since you've been monitoring this beacon? Oh, yes. Uh, I think I said uh, around 60 days each year I note, note uh, rain or snow scatter on the signal. And how does that tend to impact it? It uh broadens the signal out. I, when you get those um, uh, audio uh, recordings, uh, you can probably include one, but it, it makes it very broad buzz like Aurora, which has the interesting effect that it actually makes it sound much louder, even though the peak signal level isn't significantly different. Well, I'll play one of those recordings right now, in fact. I've also heard Paul, and I know this is going to sound a little odd, but 
microwave operators bouncing their signals off of aircraft is is that true yes definitely uh, if you get an airline airplane crossing the path you get a very short beat but if it's flying along the uh, the path then you can get them significantly longer one long enough to uh, make a uh, contact or at least get a call and grid in when we operate from uh, block island and often do in september the september contest and there are folks in western pennsylvania and uh, the our path goes right over kennedy airport so there's a plane coming by about every minute so we've made contacts uh you keep sending and it comes up and you get the call and a little lighter you get the grid and then you turn it over and do the same thing in the other direction and five or ten minutes you've made a contact if you have the patience <laughs> I'm guessing you need to reflect off of, oh, a sizable airliner, not a little Cessna 182 or something. Right. The bigger the plane, the stronger the reflection. Um, there aren't many airplanes flying in the right directions over here. Only ones are going roughly from uh, Germany to Miami. <laughs> <laughs> are you able to use them as reflectors even uh, when they're at cruise altitude? Oh, they have to be up high to be useful. It's Remember, the, with the Earth's curvature, we're looking for a reflector that's above the horizon. So when they're up at 35 or 40,000 feet, then it extends the horizon quite a way. Do you have any idea, Paul, what the current distant record is? Well, on EME, it's a few miles short of halfway around the world, but that's <laughs> yes, it's certainly over a thousand miles. Um, I think there have been some openings in the Midwest where they get Lots of openings that have done that. My my record is 1,007 kilometers. Is it primarily weather that tells you that conditions are right or might be right for a substantial band opening? Sometimes. If you get a big tropo opening, uh, you know, where the uh, atmosphere is stable and that often all VHF and microwave bands are included, uh, then you can get a wide area. And other times... Uh, when conditions look like they ought to be good, like this past week when it's been beautiful weather and warm temperature all week and high pressure, nothing. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I'm sure it's predictable, but not not to my uh, understanding. Well, this brings up the topic of activity. If you were talking to, and you may be right now, a number of hams who are new to not only amateur radio, but also to microwave operating, what sort of advice would you give in terms of uh, equipping a station and then finding somebody to communicate with? I'd start with the second part. Unless you're in an area with a lot of activity, find a partner so you'll have somebody to work with getting your equipment going and making some contacts. So I know that that's the way most of us got started. Two or three guys said, let's try this out. And if you're only building one piece of equipment, you have no way of ever knowing if, if it works. <laughs> That's right. Unless, I guess, during a contest, no? Even then, unless it's somebody very close, unless if you're not successful, you don't know why. That's true. And in terms of the equipment, uh, where do you find this stuff? Is it surplus or what? No, surplus has been killed by uh, eBay. All the dealers have raised their prices by about a factor of 10. And uh, the stuff we used to get for $2, now they think it's, you know, they have a bigger market and can get much higher prices. So, uh, there's several companies that make uh, microwave equipment. There's Down East Microwave, of course. There's uh, Kuna Electronic by DB6NT, who makes the Mercedes of microwave equipment, quality and price. 
<laughs> they're uh, smaller companies. There's a uh, company in Bulgaria that makes some uh, microwave transverters. It's Bulgaria, one of those Eastern European countries. And there are people that make little bits and pieces, or like I uh, have designed some transverters and uh, sell PC boards for them and uh, try to make them so that everything else you can get from uh, companies like DigiKey and Mauser and uh, get a simple station on the air. A lot of people have got it, gotten started that way, and uh, then maybe they decide they'll go for the high-class stuff. And then the uh, original station, they lend to one of their friends and get them on, and we keep going that way. When you mentioned transverters, that brought a question to mind. Uh, for example, in the case of the beacon that we were just listening to, you're transverting from 10 gigahertz to what frequency, Paul? Are you Is it 10 meters or what? Typically, either 2 meters or 432, because the uh, filters at 10 gigahertz just aren't sharp enough to get rid of images and uh, low 30 megahertz away. So it helps have a higher... Uh, I have frequency, and there's lots of two-meter rigs around. I would imagine it's a challenge going the other way here to generate significant power at 10 gigahertz or other microwave frequencies, or, or has that changed? Getting to the uh, two or three watt level is uh, pretty affordable. Getting high power is still difficult and expensive. But two or three watts in a good dish is a good signal. Many long contacts are made with that. There's the next question. What is what is a good dish? Well, a very popular one that works well is one that says direct TV or dish network, and you can pick them up on the, at the dump on the side of the road, or I suppose you could actually buy one. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, all those uh, dishes that are left over, a nice little 18-inch dish, very portable and uh, very effective. I have a neighbor who is brand new just moved in a couple of weeks ago, lives across the street from me. And the previous owner of the home uh, was a direct TV subscriber. And when they left, they just left the dish behind. I'm looking at it right now out the window. I can see it on the edge of their roof. I've been tempted to go over there and uh, introduce myself and say, you know, do you really need that uh, that thing hanging off the edge of your roof? I'd, I'd be happy to take that off your hands. Well, you'd find that if he decides to subscribe, they'll still insist on coming out and putting a new one up there. So, Or if he goes with cable, the cable company will take it down. Oh, that's true. Uh, yeah. And so, if you catch catch the guy doing it, you say, what do you want? What are you doing with that dish? You say, he'll throw it at you. <laughs> <laughs> so it's really not as expensive to become active on microwaves as it appears to be, or at least as my memory from decades ago remembered it? It used to be hard, yes. Um, if someone were getting started today, I'd advise them to start with 1296, where there's a lot of activity and easier to operate from home, and the equipment's even cheaper. So uh, get that going, learn something, and then if they want to go to 10 gigahertz, that's fine. Nope. Some people have started at 10 and only operate there. But you bring up an excellent point that I hadn't considered, and that is not going at it strictly by yourself, but getting a partner, getting somebody else who's equally interested in saying, hey, let's let's explore this. Let's do this. Absolutely. It's a lot more fun working with someone, and you both learn something and help each other. Um, and for portable operation, having a partner is always good because you're on a Cold mountaintop uh, hypothermia makes you dumb real quick. <laughs> <laughs>
Well, when you're coordinating with your partner, uh, are you using what, two meter FM or cell phones or what? Often you use two meter sideband on a different frequency. I seem to recall there was even a frequency, oh, nothing official, but uh, kind of a coordinating or a calling frequency. I just can't remember right now what it is on two meters. Yeah, we use uh, 144-260. That's it, 144-260 sideband. Okay. This has been very helpful, Paul. I appreciate it. And I'm hopeful that more people will get inspired to, uh, again, grab a partner and uh, maybe grab that direct TV dish and get on the air. Right. Or even more partners. I know several clubs have had a club project to do a microwave transverter. And, uh, and recently, there's one in San Diego. There's one in the uh, Toronto, Western New York area, St. Louis area, I think, also. Well, thank you very much, Paul. Okay. Well, go get that dish and get on 10 gigs, Steve. Tune in again for the next episode of Eclectic Tech, produced by ARRL, the National Association for Amateur Radio. Music is provided by Purple Planet at purpleplanet.com. If you have comments, email eclectic at arrl.org. This episode is copyright ARRL and all rights are reserved. I'm Sabrina Jackson, KC1JMW. See you next time.